This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 178. Hello, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest for you. He is Dr. Peter Weinstein. Did I say it right? No. Oh, Weinstein. <laughs> Gosh, I knew I was going to get that wrong. All right, I'm going to edit that. It's Dr. No, Peter keep going. <laughs> it's Dr. Peter Weinstein. He's a veterinarian and an MBA. He's the owner of Paw Consulting. He's the president of Simple Solutions for Vets and the co-author of the book, The E-Myth Veterinarian. He also served as president and executive director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. He was president of the California Veterinary Medical Association, and he's a popular speaker for veterinary conferences, which is where I met him at the VMX this past January. And I'm thrilled to have him here today with me. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Julie. It's an honor to be here with you today. And uh, thanks for coming up and introducing yourself in, in Orlando, where we were all having a coming out party. Yeah, it was fun there. I, I really missed being in an in-person conference. So I really enjoyed being there in January. It was the first time I had been out and probably the first time you had been out speaking, huh? No, I had spoken in um, Las Vegas at Western in September and the prior June at the VMX conference that they've had. I Anything that, that got me out of the house during COVID, I took the advantage of. I, I tried to approach COVID as a nuisance and not a pandemic and um, probably was taking chances at times, but I just needed to try to live as normal a life as I could. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I was traveling during COVID too. I just I can't stay locked up. I'm not I'm not one of those people that that likes to stay in the house. Right. So I read that bio and it was a mouthful. So can you just start by telling us your story a little bit for those that don't know a lot about you? My story. Well, I think I have the classic veterinarian story, at least for my generation, which was um, I grew up. We had cats when I was growing up. I had a, my mom was a biology teacher, so I had a science background. My dad, my grandfather was a, a general practitioner on the human side of things. So uh, the the left side of my brain was very focused on science. My dad was an accountant, so I had the math science background. And so very young, I decided I wanted to become a veterinarian. And then of course I read the James Harriet's James Harriet book, All Creatures Great and Small, and all that did was solidify the fact that I wanted to become a veterinarian. I really didn't have any plan B throughout high school, throughout college. The veterinary schools had a plan B for me. Their plan B was to say, you needed better than Bs to get into veterinary school. <laughs> oh, I can relate to that. <laughs> and so um, I finally got into veterinary school at the University of Illinois, where I decided I was gonna be an equine orthopedic surgeon at least for a short period of time, and then ended up graduating uh, as a small animal clinician with an interest in internal medicine. So yeah, I, I've uh, I followed the traditional path to get through veterinary school and worked in practice, uh, started my own hospital three years out of school, realized how little I knew. So I went back to school and got an MBA. 
and uh, realized how the rest of the world knew business and veterinary medicine didn't know business. So I set a personal goal to help the veterinary profession have a better understanding of the business of veterinary medicine uh, through writing and through teaching and coaching. And so besides owning the hospital, which I eventually sold to a corporation, I've done a lot in, uh, in writing and, and speaking to help sets the direction for the future of the veterinary profession. Yeah, and, and writing um, the e-myth with uh, Michael Gerber, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I read, and I have it right here. So, <laughs> Can I I'll, sign it for you? Wait, yes, I'll, I'll sign it. would you? Yeah, here, do it for me. Yeah, and I really, really enjoyed it. I, and I, I think when I started reading it, I think I had read it before. Like it was, it sounded really familiar. So I think I might've read it. Um, when it first came out, possibly. So, I think you probably lived it. Like most veterinarians, you didn't read the book, you lived the book. I mean, really, the stories that I tell are those that very, a large number of our colleagues, especially in, in small animal clinical medicine, have experienced at some point or another. So it's, it's, it's everybody's story. Yeah, and especially as an owner of a veterinary hospital. I mean, right. a lot of the stories that you tell are, are very familiar. So yeah. what do you see as the, I mean, I, I have all the subjects written down from the book, but what do you see as the primary struggles that we're seeing right now in veterinary medicine, either, you know, emotionally or business-wise, or what do you see as the keys that we're struggling with right now? Wow. How long do we have? Um, <laughs> we have a long no, time, I, so... Yeah. The veterinary profession is wonderful. It's great. It, it, it's just, it's an amazing profession. And I think we get so hung up at times on the negativity that we forget about the positive stuff. And, and I think a lot of it comes from being the um, compassionate individuals that we are and the, the classic entrepreneur. I mean, veterinary medicine chooses individuals. The vet schools choose individuals. And the classic entrepreneur is an individual. And so, but we are a social animal. And so I think a lot of the challenges that we have as a profession come from trying to figure out how to be a social animal in a um, competitive marketplace with money being the ultimate driver for everything. So whether it's leadership, whether it's communication, whether it's training, whether it's trust, whether it's money, I think there's a whole bunch of, of little variables, kind of like leeches that are out there sucking the blood of the veterinary profession. And what we really need to do is, is figure out how to uh, still have fun in the profession while bettering ourselves individually and bettering our teams uh, to be better leaders, to be better communicators, to be better trainers, to have more trust in people, and to look at money as a a source for the things that we want, but not as a barrier to the things that we can accomplish. I, I think we get so hung up on, on, um, on, on cost of care, and we get so hung up on, on trying to build these great facilities that money becomes, and, and student debt and salaries, that money becomes um, like a guillotine hanging over our necks all the time. And how do we think about it differently? Like, how do we change that thought of money being a barrier as to more being a tool? 
It's a, it's a great question. And, and I think it's, it's realizing what money can do for you, learning how to um, invest when you're young, um, learning how to live uh, on 90% of your income instead of 100% so you can pay down debt and, and um, learning how to run a business that's more profitable by whatever tools that you need to be more profitable, whether it's staff retention or marketing or communication or training. I think way too often we, we spend a lot of money on bright, shiny objects, toys, instead of on people. And really, this is a people profession. I don't think most of our clients even know what toys we have in our practices, but they know what people we have. And if we invested more in our people, the toys, the toys give you access to diagnostics, but the people give you access to clients. If you don't have the right people as your gatekeepers at the front desk, you don't get to see the clients and their patients. And so it's really about understanding money, understanding how money can be used and, and trying to figure out ways to deliver optimal veterinary care in a profitable fashion for your business and your staff and a reasonable cost fashion for your clients. And so are you basically promoting that we turn our focus more towards educating our people um, taking care of them financially, like what are those pieces? I know you explain some of that in the book. I, I think we need to start explaining money at the elementary school level and all through high school. And I think in, every year in veterinary school, there should be some discussions on money. It, it's, um, it's interesting. Um, interest, compounding interest. It's, we don't, we don't take advantage of it. And we work against it because we use credit cards to buy things that have crazy interest rates. And, and we, we look at the statement from the credit card company that says minimum payment, and that's what we pay, <laughs> which means we'll have 30 years to pay off our credit cards. But what we have to do is understand how money can work for us and how money can work against us. Now, I'm not an economist. I have a business degree that was more on the entrepreneurial side of things, but I really do think that we need to start educating our kids about personal budgets. And I, I think we need to understand and help our team, veterinary team, understand about personal budgeting and, and get them started on retirement planning when they're 18 so that they have something when they're 65 and they don't have to work till they're 85. So it, it's just really about having the conversation about how money works, what inflation means, what a recession means, how to invest, how to safely invest and put money away that you're not gonna touch and just to be smart. So it, it's at all levels, but it starts with education. And, and I think it starts with helping our, our staff members, both professional staff and paraprofessional staff, um, not have to worry about it. And, and have access to it and, and pay fair and equitable salaries and, and give benefits that treat veterinary staff members as part of the family and, and give them no reason to want to leave because they can have a life and a career, not just a job, working for you. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And I was fortunate that I had a dad who was an accountant and a mom who was a banker. 
So I kind of had that education, not from school, but from my parents who were very, not very well off when I was born. Like my dad was putting himself through college at the time. But do you see a difference in where veterinarians are coming out of school now in the um, area of finances than when, say, we got out of school? Because you and I graduated a while ago, and we won't say how long ago, but (laughs) is it different now? Because that's what I hear from a lot of my younger clients is, well, you older folks didn't have it as hard as we do. Do you see a difference? I think we had it different. We had it harder in some ways. I think in in many cases, this connected community that we have with the internet is actually made it harder because it allows for a focus on negativity and and an escalation of negativity. I think that, that that the younger graduates are coming out with a higher level of debt than we had because the cost of education is escalated at a higher rate than the, than the inflationary costs. I think salaries have not kept up with inflation. And so that, that uh, earning capacity versus debt uh, has not been narrowed as much as we can. Now, some of that has been improved over the last couple of years as um, people have started to learn economics 101, supply and demand. The supply of veterinarians is down. Demand for veterinarians is up, which means the salaries have gone up. Yeah, which is is great for the new grads, right? Not so great, great. for the hospital owners. <laughs> Correct. Well, it, it again, it, it's um, we've reflected some of that in in costs to clients to make up for it, which has created another issue on the client side of things about the affordability of care. But we can get onto that in in just a minute. But I think that the challenges are this are the same but different. Uh, I think they the the challenges we didn't talk about. We had our own challenges 25, 30 years ago when we graduated, but we they really weren't headline news. I think we have taken many of the challenges and made them news. And, and we do that on all the news networks that are on cable TV and, and, and in the world is, is that we have taken information and forgotten about knowledge. We're not talking, what's great about some of the math-based areas like economics is it's knowledge, it's it's results, it's statistics. But what we get is a whole bunch of information from a fire hose and we we absorb what we can. It's like pipe stream diarrhea. Some of the nutrients stay behind and half the nutrients end up on the ground. (laughs) So that's what we're dealing with is we're dealing with misinformation and, you know, negative, negativity sells. And and we naturally are drawn to that negativity because that's how our negative brain works. And that's a lot of what I do in trying to coach veterinarians because I want everyone to stay in this profession. I love this profession. So I hear that, you know, you telling us that it really isn't worse. It's just we've, we're getting more of the negativity. And, and there's so many positive things. Yeah. It's perspective perspective, it's perception. And, and, and of course, if you go and work in a very toxic and negative work environment, it exacerbates the situation. Of course. And if all you read is how people are leaving the profession after five years and you're four and a half, then you think you only have six months left. <laughs> so, you know, instead of highlighting 
we need to highlight the more of the positive stories from first year, second years, third years, from the veterinary students, and give them more airtime and figure out what made them positive. What was it about their experiences that we can learn from as practice owners? What is it from their experiences that we can learn from as associates so that we can make a better profession going forward and not constantly um, get hung up by the negativities? Yeah, I love that. So you um, told me when we talked before that you have a daughter that's in vet school. I do. Third that's year? Third year. It's, uh, I keep having a hard time wrapping my arms around it until she <laughs> sends me a case and says, what do you think's going on here, dad? And it's like, uh, let me give you a call back. And I get online or I take a book <laughs> off the shelf or I call, you know, phone a friend, do a 50-50, whatever it is. It's hard to say I don't know to your daughter, right? Uh, yes, it's, it's not I don't know. It's I don't have time right now, but I'll get right back back to you. It's like, yeah, I better find the answer and I better get it right. But yeah. no, it, it's really cool to have a daughter in veterinary school. Um, I'm living vicariously through her. She's at uh, Oregon State University in Corvallis. It's a gorgeous campus. It's a great place to go to school. And she's thriving. I, I, I think she's enjoying learning. Um, she's enjoying the experiences that she's having. And uh, I'm a little bit jealous. Um, but on the other hand, I look forward to um, seeing her come out of school and, and uh, have fun in, um, in what she's going to do and yeah. whatever that may be. So. It, is it something that she was drawn to naturally or do you think um, on some level you encouraged her to go in that direction? I would say it's nature and nurture. Um, I had sold my hospital and was no longer in clinical practice and she was five, like three years old four years old, five years old. She was young. Yeah. So she wasn't, she wasn't raised in a stainless steel cage or a run and having to work <laughs> on Christmas and New Year's like, like many, some of my, like my kids, right? <laughs> yes, like some second generation uh, veterinary students. She um, got to go to the zoo with my wife, who was a zookeeper and, and help out there. And she got plenty of exposure because of my various roles within the veterinary profession and going to conferences and other things with me. But I, what I feel that I did was basically say, Brooke, you tell me what you want and I will help you have opportunities. And, um, but I'm not gonna push you in one way or another. And I, I didn't encourage her. I didn't discourage her. She knew all the negatives. She heard the conversations that I had all the time on the phone with colleagues. Um, she knew the cost of education. She knew the debt situation, but she made the decision on her own. So I think part of it was my gene pool, maybe some of my cesspool, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, I think part of it was just exposure, growing up with pets. And um, yeah, so I, I've, I've been a supporter, but I haven't been an encourager or a discourager. I love that. Yeah, because I, I really think that um, there's so much discouragement right now in this profession that I, I think that um, if we can figure out a way to offer the opportunities and the positive side of it to new students coming up rather than discouraging them, because I used to get really angry when vets would tell me not to become a vet. And I, I don't want that for our people that are, are really interested. So 
Yeah, I, I remember my guidance counselor in high school um, basically trying to convince me to become an RD, a real doctor. And uh, I said, uh, not an option, not a discussion. Don't want to deal with people. Um, want to help animals. And so I, um, I think we have a lot of, of people. I think the Merck study that came out in February reiterated the fact that only 50% or less of veterinarians 50% or so of veterinarians would not encourage a friend, a colleague, or a family member to become a veterinarian, which means half of our colleagues are encouraging them to do something else. And that's disheartening after spending as much time as you and I have been in this field to know that there are others who are focusing more on the challenges instead of the opportunities. I mean, there are so many opportunities that we have and different things that we can do. I mean, I've recalibrated myself a number of different times over the years, as have you. Um, this, is, this is a no limits profession that truly can make a difference in the lives of people, pets, food animals, one health, zoonotic disease, public health. I mean, I, I, I can go on. I think we get so hung up by um, bad experiences. It goes back to what you were saying before. Our reptilian brain tends to drive everything. I think once you get into vet school, you need to have your reptilian brain removed. <laughs> that would be nice, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine how much easier your life would be if you didn't have all those negative thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's, uh, I, and I'm not to say that I don't have negative thoughts and say negative things, but I really would love to figure out how we could focus more on on self-advocacy and cheerleading and not self-beating. I mean, we beat ourselves up, we beat others up, we don't always say nice things about our colleagues. And, um, you know, and, and as, as you're well aware, we tend to have a, a very negative work environments as well, which only um, exacerbate, God, I've used that twice already in uh, 20 minutes. That's okay. um, it, it only worsens, um, the negativity. I think we pile negative on top of negative. I, I, I haven't been in an exam room as a clinician in a, in a while, but I remember all of the negative conversations and all of the negative outcomes, which again, mm -hmm. goes back to your reptilian brain and, and defense mechanisms, but it's not to my benefit to do that. I really wish I could um, go back and make a book on all the positive outcomes. And sometimes those are the things that we need to focus on. In fact, those of you who listen to this call, get yourself a gratitude journal or whatever you want to call it and start to make notes of the positive outcomes, the fun events, the, the, the positive things that happen in your practice on a daily basis and try to flush out those negative things and not be those that don't carry those around with you. Yeah. And I would add to that. And this is something I think is an advantage to the way it is now is we have Instagram and we have our cell phones. And so when the cute puppies and kittens come in and you're having a good time and you're on the floor and you're loving your job, take a photo. And then when you're feeling down, go back and look through those as well as your gratitude journal, because I think we really do, you know, you have one bad experience in a day and you have, you know, 30 awesome ones. And then you focus on that one negative. And that's when your brain goes to that place of your job, our job sucks or whatever. So so tell me a little bit about the e-myth and how that all started for you. Uh, so I was 
couple of years into owning my hospital and I didn't know what I didn't know until I owned my own hospital. (laughs) I would 100% agree with that. I really thought I was excellent at everything until I bought my hospital. (laughs) Right. And and mine was a startup. So I didn't have a lot of room for error because, you know, every penny that came through the door paid the staff and then maybe there was a penny left for me. So I was attending a continuing education programs on um, practice management to try to learn what I didn't know. And um, one of the speakers suggested reading The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. So I read the book and uh, a couple of different times, dog-eared it, highlighted it. Um, And then I started to attend some of the local educational meetings that Michael was giving in LA and Orange County. Um, I like to joke that I was a Michael Gerber stalker. Um, Talked to some of his coaches online and then tried to extrapolate information from the e-myth into my practice. So creating systems and um, organizing the practice because for the most part, I was just going about each day and trying to get through the day and then deja vu the next day and the next day, six days a week. And so I um, then went back to to, uh, business school at night while I was running my practice six days a week and um, learned even more about how other businesses dealt with the challenges that, that they were facing. And so I went back and I used a lot of the stuff that I learned in my MBA program, plus even more from the E-Myth and just started to make some changes within the practice and, and try to do what Michael says, which is to work on your business, not just in your business. And so it meant taking time on the weekends or while in the practice to think about what we needed to look at the financial statements and understand what each line item meant and also understand what product services or things that we did influenced our outcomes. And so I started to understand more of the business of being a veterinarian. So the E-myth, the the E in E-myth stands for entrepreneurial myth. And it's basically that, um, that most tech, most, most small business owners, most of the Dr. Julie's of the world and Dr. Peters of the world are technicians who had an entrepreneurial seizure, which is what I did because I saw a great shopping center in Laguna Hills, California, and there was one empty suite and it was in a highly trafficked middle to upper middle class community. And I said, well, if I can do the work for somebody else, I can do it for myself. Right. And I really didn't have a clue how much work they were actually doing to get the work done until I had to do it for myself. Nobody knows that, right? Yeah. And, and, and the fact is that just, you know, it's, it, there's a difference between a business that does technical work and running a business that, that provides a service. Right. And so we were good as doctors, but we're not always good at running the business that allows us to be a doctor. And so that's what the E-Myth is all about. <clears throat> I um, 
if you want the story behind how I got to be the co-author, that's an even funnier story. Sure, lay it on me, I wanna hear it. Um, I was in, in Seattle um, at the Pac-12 Swimming Championships, watching my daughter swim for USC. And I got a phone call during the um, event, which I let go to voicemail, till I got back to my um, hotel room. And there was a voicemail from somebody at Mike Lee Gerber company saying that, um, would you be interested in co-authoring a book with Michael Gerber? Now, we know what junk phone calls are all about. So it's like, yeah, sure. So I gave him a call someone back. someone was punking you, huh? That's exactly what I was thinking. That's what so I, I would think. Him, <laughs> I, gave, I gave him a call back. And I said, <clears throat> I know Michael's voice, so I'm only going to have this conversation with Michael Gerber, and um, then I can know it's real. So what had happened, to make a long story short, is I had just spoken at um, WVC in Las Vegas earlier that month, and I had said, you know, go out and buy the E-Myth Revisited read it. It's a book that should be on every small business owner's shelf, whether it's written. The fact that it was written 40 years ago means absolutely nothing because the, the messaging hasn't changed. Well, the book wasn't as readily available in the bookstores as it had been. I don't can't understand, explain why. And so they were, they called the Michael Gerber company to find out where they can get the book. And they said, well, who is talking about the book? And it's like, <laughs> oh, Dr. Peter Weinstein. It's like, and so one thing led to another. And I, I just explained that I used a lot of the teachings in the book to help my practice grow and become more successful. And they said, would you like to co-author? And so, yeah, one thing led to another. And about nine months later, I was done with my chapters in the book and it went to press. And I still, still talk to Michael every once in a while, but I can't wrap my arms around the fact that I actually did this. Yeah, and it's a really good book too. I would I would encourage everyone, because I before we were gonna do this podcast, I wanted to make sure I read it. And as I was reading it, I'm like, I know I read this before, but, um, but I really, I had all these ideas and things to talk to my manager about. So it, there is a lot in there. So- Well, thank you. What are the, let's just pick one or two things from the book that you think that you would like people to know and give them a little taste. Cause you talk about business planning money, which we kind of already talked about a little bit. Um, people, you call it hurting the cats, I think. <laughs> um, associates, then, you know, having patience for our clients and patients. So what do you, what do you, uh, let's pick like one or two really cool things to, to let them know that you talk about in the book. Well, I, I think if you, you want to look at small business success, the foundation for small business success is leadership. That's the cement that you build your business on. But there are what I like to say four pillars that you can frame your business around. A vision, which is what you want your practice or business to look like when it's working at its optimal. A mission or purpose, which is why you get up every morning and go to work. Core values or standards, you know, how you're gonna behave when you deliver veterinary services, and then the standards of care within your practice. So 
a truly successful practice has a vision, mission, core values, and standards of care. It gives it, and everybody on the team knows what they are. Because otherwise, if you have no direction, you've got a job. If you've got a vision and a purpose, then you're really heading towards something down the road. And you're doing it with a, a, a feeling of what it's going to feel like and look like with a value statement that says, hey, this is how we're going to behave. This is how we're going to act. And anything outside of those standards by our clients or by our staff is unacceptable. And then, of course, standards of care help you clearly define how you're going to practice veterinary medicine, which isn't always very clear because we change how we practice from client to client based upon what car they drive or how they're dressed. <laughs> you laugh, but tell me it's not the truth. We, yeah, it we can happen. It, it took me a long time as a young veterinarian to, to try not to do that. Your brain still wants to do it. They, you want to prejudge people by the way they look or the car they drive. But I learned very early on that I just had to practice the medicine I practice and offer the high quality and let them make the decision, but then, and then not judge them based on what they could or couldn't do. Because I think that's where a lot of our pain comes from is we think people should do or must do, or, you know, we, we fight this, like we know best kind of thinking. And I think if you can just say, this is our standard and this is what we offer and then allow the client to, to decide it, it's so helpful and then just go with that. So tell me about that. I kind of went off towards the clients, but tell me how you feel about our relationship with our clients. Well, you know, if you read the internet these days, the last two years have um, started to put a, it's almost like our clients are the Ukraine and we're Russia or they're Russia and we're the Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, they're the enemy, right? Right, we're, we're in battle with our clients. And, and I think, uh, you're probably more versed in this than I am, but there's a lot of mental health issues going on out there as a result of um, the COVID and the pandemic situation. And I think everybody's nerve endings are really raw. And we tend to hyper reflex or hyper react, excuse me, to everything. So I think we've been pissed. Our clients have been pissed. Everybody is pissed at one another, but we have to recognize that the clients are the ones who pay the bills. And we've been in a contentious relationship because we've had a very, it, it, at times, a very doctor-centric business model in, a, in what I would say is more of a service-based industry than a healthcare industry. I, I think in many cases, we really need to take our mindset and become a service industry that delivers healthcare rather than a healthcare industry that has to deliver service. So the relationship with the clients is one that if we thought of our clients as um, customers or clients coming into a Ritz-Carlton, a Ruth Chris, um, and treat them with that respect, they may not like the steak, but that doesn't mean that they're wrong. And the social media side of things has exacerbated third time, has, uh, has made this even worse by allowing clients a, an anonymous platform to share their dissatisfaction. So I think what's happened really is, is the imperfect storm of really high-stressed veterinary practices, working too hard, 
high stress clients who really aren't happy with everything that's going on put together in a um, vortex and everybody's at odds with one another. And, and I, listen, I'm a client of veterinary hospitals right now myself because I don't own a hospital. I think we can all be doing a better job from a service standpoint. I think the veterinarians and their teams are doing the best jobs that they can. But I think we need to start to think about, can we, can we focus more on the client experience so that we are giving clients a positive experience? And maybe it's the people, maybe we have to choose different people who have the client contacts, but um, we, we've really been in a, in a very challenging situation the last two years. And I, I think um, we have to start to change that going forward. And there may be some mindset changes and maybe we have to stop trying to be everything to everybody and try to choose specific clients or client types that meet our standards of care, meet our, our vision, uh, meet our, our, our core values. I think uh, sometimes when you try to be everything to everybody, you be, end up being nothing to everybody. Yeah, so. I, I agree with that. And you say, um, you and Michael said something in the book about getting the clients you deserve. And when you say, you know, we, we can narrow our focus to the clients that, that are our clients that align with our mission and let the other ones go. I think that that is definitely something that we can do and without being nasty about it. Right. And, and getting angry about it. You know, these are our, these are our people. These are probably not our people and hopefully another hospital can serve them better. Yeah, I mean, as a consultant, and I, I don't know where it was published, but if you want to look at Pareto's principle, I think AVMA or somebody published in the past, 20% of our clients give you 80% of your profits. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think true. it was 50% of your clients give you 95% of your profits, which means 50% of your clients give you 100% of your headaches. <laughs> so if you took really good care of 50% of your clients, you wouldn't have to work as hard. They would be happier. Your team would be happier and you'd probably get home on time. But yeah. instead, as we talked about earlier, that 50% of your headaches is what you bring to the dinner table, which is forcing you to have a second glass of wine instead of just one or second beer. So I really do think we need to start to take back control of some of, of what we do, if we can, um, and, and start, to, start to decide how we wanna practice veterinary medicine. And it shouldn't be the same way that we did it two years ago, and it shouldn't be the same way we did it 20 years ago. And it definitely shouldn't be the same way that James Harriet did it 100 years ago, or Noah did it 5,000 years ago. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And, the, and I would add to that, that process of change in your practice is kind of painful, but if you can roll with it, especially if you're the owner that's been there for a while, if you can let the young associates come in and, and change you in some way without getting offended, it will make your practice way better and your life way easier. And I understand that struggle because when you're the owner and you think it should be done a certain way, it's a little hard to change. But I think that in all aspects, change, is mostly good, mostly good. I, um, I read somewhere that the area in the brain that lights up during change is the same area in the brain that lights up during extreme torture. <laughs> 
Oh uh, yeah, I, I I could see where that that could be true. <laughs> I but have a, a, a couple of employees that hate change, and it is like torture to them. It, it's a good time to change though, because we we showed, and I never thought this would happen. We showed that the veterinary could profession could change its delivery model because we went to curbside in many cases. Drastically change, right? Yes. So you have a choice and you can go back to the way things were in January of 2020 and do it exactly the same way you were. Or we can try to learn from what worked out of the curbside changes and the other things that we did and move forward with some of those or because we've already made some changes, let's just make big ones now. Let's just say, the heck with it. I'm going to change clothes completely and um, make some big changes because we showed we can do it. But it's up yeah. to you to, to make those change, to make that decision of, as to what you want to do. Because um, I think many of the pain points that we've had in the last two years come from the fact that we keep wanting to go back to the way things were. Yeah, I, I'm kind of struggling at the opposite in my practice. I kind of want to keep it curbside. <laughs> so I keep resisting the people wanting to come back in because it was really efficient. Like we got a lot done. So it, it, it is, it's, it's just trying to make those tweaks to make it better. So if somebody out there is a younger veterinarian and they're thinking about becoming an owner, like what, what kind of advice would you have for them? I would suggest that they join. If, so first of all, if, they're in, if, if any listeners are in veterinary school, join the VBMA at your veterinary school and start to attend the VBMA CE programs. So that's number one. Number two, if you are a, a technician thinking about having an entrepreneurial seizure, uh, excuse me, if you're a young veterinarian thinking that you may want to own a hospital, Hang out with the manager at the hospital where you're working. When you're not seeing clients and, and doing surgeries and not in the treatment area, hang out with the manager and see what that entails. Talk to the owner, ask questions. Start to create a mental picture of what you would like to see your practice look like. Now, my first practice that I lasted at for three months told me exactly what I did not want to do when I owned a hospital. But the next group of hospitals gave me a picture of what I could do when I owned a hospital. So build a dream, but don't be limited to what the practice models look like in 2022. Be motivated to recognize that not that long ago, there was no Uber, no Airbnb. Going back even further, there was no Starbucks. And so what is it that you want to build that would be different. That's a millennial-based business or a Gen Z-based business or an experience-based business rather than the traditional classic veterinary hospital from that standpoint. So go up on a mountaintop, look out over the hills, go to the ocean, look out over the ocean, take a couple of mushrooms, whatever it is that you want <laughs> and dream and don't let anybody tell you that you can't accomplish your dream. And then build a, build a support team. 
advisors, consultants, accountants, lawyers, um, managers to help you where you're not strong so that you can get to the outcome that you're looking for and separate yourself as far as you can from any naysayers out there that tell you that you can't do it. How's I love that? all that. That's perfect. I love it. That should be the book. That's your. That's the first chapter of, of that next book that you're working on, right? Yes. That's, that's great. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would like to give that exact speech to all veterinary schools or all people thinking about getting into veterinary school. Right. That's how you need to design your your life, not necessarily just your practice. Right. Yep. Except I don't know about the mushrooms thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think they've legalized the hallucinogens in Oregon. I'll have to talk to Brooke. Um, But uh, what she knows about it. I don't know if she knows about it. I hope she hasn't. But I shouldn't say I hope she hasn't been experimenting with them. But anyhow, um, yes, there's uh, there's nothing wrong with with having um, a little bit of motivation. I'm not, if I'm not incorrect, uh, many of the, the true innovative companies do some micro dosing to help uh, stimulate uh, thoughts and, and different ideas, but that's for a different conversation, Dr. Julie. Yeah, that's for your Joe Rogan podcast, right? They... Not mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know anything about that. No, okay, no, no. so I have another question about books because you and I, I, I came to one of your lectures on the, I forget what it was called, but like the best books to read or something, if you're in veterinary practice or if you're trying to run a business. So right. besides the e veterinarian, and the whole title is why most veterinary practice practices don't work and what to do about it. Besides this book, what are your other favorites? Just a, just a couple. So people out there, because I love reading and I like to encourage people in my audience to read. How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie. Good book. Must read. It should be read in vet school. It should be read after graduation. Um, the One Minute Manager, Ken Blanchard. Classic book on how to run a business from that standpoint. Excuse me as I look at my bookshelves. Okay, that's um, fine. Jack Canfield, The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Um, on the veterinary side of things, on the business side, the, the uh, five-minute consultant, Blackwell's five-minute, what is it called? Uh, yeah, the five-minute veterinary practice management consultant. There's about 150 authors that give you all sorts of ideas on practice management. Um, I love reading biographies. Oh, John Wooden on leadership. John Maxwell. Yeah, John, on yeah, John Maxwell's great. Yeah. And John Wooden. Um, so that's, uh, oh, and, and, you know, we never got to, after building the pillars, the next thing is to build systems, processes, and checklists. Yes. That's how you get your practice in order so you're not redoing everything every day. So Checklist Manifesto by Dr. Atul Gawande, which is all about how to use checklists to ensure the safety of your patients, your clients, et cetera. Um, And I could go on, but I'm just looking at the bookshelves and trying to figure out which books um, that I would suggest. Yeah, well, those are all good. Those are all good suggestions. I don't think I read the Checklist Manifesto. And I'm not a very, 
um, detailed person. So for me, if I can have my team help me design the systems, then it's better. Yeah, well, that's a whole I, have, I have lots thing. of ideas, but I have a hard time getting them into a system. Well, that's because you're an entrepreneur. So your job isn't to build the systems. Your job is to build the vision. Yeah, I like that, too. Yeah, that would help us all. So since my podcast is about um, veterinarians taking better care of their mental health in a lot of ways, how do you do that for yourself, being such a busy speaker and writer and all the things that you do? Um, I read every day. I work out every day that I can. Try to find time for myself, even if it's just walking the dog. Um, I also multitask for whatever it's worth. I will um, work out and listen to uh, audible books. Mm -hmm. And um, so in, in the, in the um, Jack Canfield's book, uh, The Success Principles, he talks about the power hour. 20 minutes of reading, 20 minutes of meditation, and 20 minutes of exercise. Now, we all make great excuses as to why we can't do any of these things. But if you have a 20 minute drive to work, put a book on Audible and listen for 20 minutes on your way to work. You probably won't want to get out of the car when you get to the office. <laughs> if you can go and walk for 20 minutes at lunchtime, do so. And if you can take a 20 minute nap, I would consider that to be meditation because most of the time you're never going to get to REM three, but you might get REM one, which is actually what meditation is. Correct me if I'm wrong. So if you can carve out, and it doesn't all have to be consecutively, if you can carve out 60 minutes in your day to take care of you, be mindful of you, by the way, to be all fully honest and transparent, I'm not perfect. I don't do this every day, but I can well, at least None of us are perfect. And I think that's what we have to remember is if you, if you miss a day, it doesn't mean you stop, you try again, you right. do it again, you do it again. And eventually it becomes easier to get it done and, and have those healthy habits. Right. And, and so, I mean, as much as I, I, I miss going to the gym, I think there's a, a psychological um, issue where I hate when I'm sitting at home after the end of the day and I haven't had a chance to go work out for an hour. And I think as soon as, whether it's an endorphin need, I don't know. But anyhow, if you can break out three 20 minute sessions, great. If you can do it all in one time, great. But Find at least an hour per day for you where you don't think about work and you think about you. That's my Love message. That. Beautiful. Perfect. It's great. So is there anything else that we missed? Anything that I didn't ask you that you think we, that I should have or anything else that we need to get out there into the world? And it doesn't mean that we can't do this again, but before we wrap up this podcast. No, I, 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 my only message to my colleagues is we need to take care of each other. And I think that we need to be sensitive and sensitized to the issues that are going on around us. I think sometimes we're pretty oblivious to our teams and we're pretty oblivious even to ourselves. And so um, the world isn't taking care of us. We need to take care of each other. So be sensitive, phone a friend, Check in with people, check in with your team. Uh, I can't remember who I heard this from, but we, we should be routinely doing a checkup from the neck up. That's probably a life coach line. Um, <laughs> yeah, it probably came from one of us. <laughs> yeah, and, um, 
but we need to take care of each other. And, and I think that the role of organized veterinary medicine in many ways is, is advocacy, not just at the um, regulatory level, but at the personal level. And so we really should be helping each other take care of each other. That's my only message. Yeah, I love that. And I, I always tell people on my podcast that if you need something, ask for it and don't suffer in silence because I think sometimes we are either brought up or it's just inbred in us that we need to be perfect and everything needs to go well and that we're not supposed to make mistakes and bad things aren't supposed to happen. Like we have this story in our head. And if we understand that we all have that and we all struggle with that, that it's going to make it easier to reach out for help. And that's why I like talking to people like you on this podcast. And for you to say that is powerful because people know that you've had some negativity at times and you've had to learn to take care of yourself. And I think that is what it's all about is just that, you know, group dynamic of taking care of each other. So I love that. So if you're willing, would you share um, where people might find you, your website? Where do you want to direct people if they want to learn more about you and what, what you're doing? Well, I appreciate that. Um, you, can, you can email me. I, I think my website is um, still under development. Um, As they always are, right? Yeah. Every time I go to my website, I'm like, oh, I need to change this. I need to change that. It feels like it's a constant battle. Yeah. Well, we just gutted the website, but the website is simple solutions, F O R for vets.com. So simple solutions for vets.com. Uh, my email is P A W at simple solutions for vets.com. Perfect. That's my initials. So. Awesome. I love it. So is there any last words, a quote you like before we wrap up? Um, a quote I like. I, have, <laughs> I know that's I, hard. I, I'm putting you yeah. on the spot with that one because that's something that's really hard to think of. There's a quote that was, and, and I don't know why this just came to mind. I had this, um, I've got two quotes. The, when I was growing up, um, I had a quote from Henry David Thoreau, something to the effect is the only obligation that we have a right to assume is to do what we think is right. Love it. And right below that was from Bruce Springsteen. It's a town full of losers and I'm pulling out of here to win. <laughs> uh, that's, that's perfect. It couldn't be any better. <laughs> well, I just thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I had a really good instinct when I decided to get up after that conference and ask you to be on the podcast. It took us a few months to get here, but I'm really excited that we did. I love all the things that you offer. I really love the book. So anybody out there that wants to read the book, go to Amazon and get it. And if you need any help or you um, want to share anything, you can email me or email Peter. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation, Julie, and, and to all the audience out there. Um, take care of yourselves and uh, look forward to bumping into you at some live veterinary conference somewhere around the country, or around the world. I'm all for group hugs. So hope to see right? you all soon. Yeah, we're all ready for those hugs right now, right? Me too. I, I'll take a hug anytime. Lord.
All right, everyone, have a beautiful week and take care of yourselves. Bye. Bye, Peter. Thanks. Bye, Julie. Thank you.